This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing immigration and its effects on America's heartland here in the Midwest. I'm joined by Rob Parle, an expert demographer and a non-resident fellow at the Council. Welcome, Rob. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here with you. Also joining us is Sarah McElmurray, Assistant Director of Immigration at the Council. It's good to have you here too, Sarah. Thank you, Brian. One of the biggest and most controversial issues in the early days of the Trump administration has been immigration, notably when he came into office, uh, getting the construction of the wall underway, um, imposing uh, travel bans in Congress. Uh, In Congress, there has been legislation introduced to uh, potentially reduce immigration. And against this backdrop, you two have produced a new report called Immigration, a Demographic Lifeline in Midwestern metros. And I want to start by talking about and laying out for people, why does what's going on demographically in the Midwest and why is it important? There's something about declining populations, but what did you find and, and why does that matter? So immigration is a national issue, but it has a particular a story in the Midwest which is different and which sets the Midwest apart. And that's one of the things we were uh, trying to identify in this report we did. And uh, basically the story is that, you know, at the national level, there's a lot of debate about how many immigrants should we receive? Are there uh, competitions between natives, uh, people born here and between immigrants and and things like that? So for jobs, who's going to get the jobs, that kind of competition? Exactly. There's this kind of a thing I like to call about, um, uh, that I like to talk about is uh, looking for a spot on the beach. You know, there's a lot of us showing up at the beach and is there enough elbow room for all of us? That's kind of the national story about immigration. But the problem is in the Midwest, that story doesn't work. Uh, because the Midwest, as we'll talk about today, has a lot of metro areas, a lot of cities, a lot of suburbs that are actually in a very slow growth phases, growing much more slowly than they have ever in their history, in some cases losing population. So the dynamic involving immigration is very different in these places uh, where immigration serves to uh, counterbalance and offset the decline of the native population. So what's wrong with a declining population? On one hand, with all the concerns about jobs, a person could say, hey, this is great. It means that there are more jobs for the, for the native-born. So why do we worry about a decline? Well, uh, the, the problem of declining populations is what it means is that there are declining consumers on the one hand. One part of the, the equation is you have declining consumers. You have fewer people who can purchase homes, purchase autos, purchase the things that an economy is based on as it produces goods and services. Uh, then on the other hand, in, a, in an area that's um, uh, a, a center of production like the Midwest, you have fewer producers. You have fewer persons who can work and produce goods and services, contribute to the economy. This has a tax consequences. It has a lot of social ramifications as the population ages and, and, and moves out of younger age categories. So that's some of the problem when you have population decline. Almost no one in the developed world wants to be Japan. And what's wrong with Japan? Japan has been stagnant for uh, uh, over a decade now for a couple reasons, but one of the reasons is that demographically they are, I think, the largest, most substantial developed nation that's actually in population decline. And these things that I was mentioning in the Midwest play out on a big scale. You don't want that. You you get these, I don't want to oh, talk too much right now. I know we have a lot of things to talk about, but I did want to point out, you get these lopsided ratios of elderly people to children. 
And the problem is children require taxpayers to educate them, and et cetera. So there's a lot of um, distortions that happen when you age and lose population. Terrific. And looking at the report that you did across the Midwest, give us a sense. How how significant is the decline in population? And is there a pattern to it? Is it concentrated in certain places or types of places? Well, we, we actually embarked on this report as a refresh of a similar project that we'd released in 2014 based on 2010 data. Um, those numbers were seven years old, and we wanted to see sort of in this current um, political environment where immigration is front and center, do the data play out? Um, do immigrants continue to be sort of an, an immigrant lifeline, uh, a demographic lifeline for our region? Um, the answer unequivocally was yes. Um, we, we have, as Rob mentioned, a declining native-born population. Um, and most critically, uh, a decline in a, a working age cohort of 35 to 44-year-olds. Um, the drop-off there was nearly a quarter of um, that workforce over the past 15 years. Now let's bring the immigrant side into this. Yes. So what has the effect of in immigration to the Midwest had to counteract um, this this native-born decline? So most of the, uh, again, I keep trying to internationalize this because this phenomenon is happening around the world. Most of the uh, Western democracies or, or advanced nations that are immigrant-receiving areas, they uh, derive a real benefit from immigration in a couple ways. One of the ways is that immigrants, as a population, are much more likely than other populations, like the native populations uh, of the countries they're going to, or like the populations they leave. They tend to be young. They're, they're in their 20s and 30s. And um, from a fiscal point of view, uh, what's a good deal about immigration is that you get people who are generally healthy. They don't use health care costs. They generally have very high rates of participation in the labor force and are hungry to work. And they're generally getting towards their highest tax-paying uh, years as they move towards their 30s and 40s. So it's fiscally, generally speaking, a good deal to get immigrants. And, um, and they offset precisely the age categories that are in decline um, here in the Midwest. And I should note a little bit about why, why we see decline in the Midwest. This is a mm -hmm. national phenomenon, but there are, these, uh, there are these creatures, if you will. I'm one of them called the baby boomers. I'm one, too. They're born after the Second World War ends, so you start about 1945, and through about 1964, you have a lot of prosperity in the United States, you have a lot of women entering the labor force, you have a lot of social dynamism, you have a huge explosion of births, okay? Which is all very nice and fine, and they've dominated our, our culture and our consumerism and our definition of who we are as a nation, but what has happened is, just like anyone else, they're getting older. And, I know I am, for example. And yeah. Every year, the people who once upon a time marched around with signs and, and wore uh, Nehru jackets and things like that, as, as they move into their 50s, their 60s, or 70s, the problem is they're moving out of their 30s and their 40s. So there's prime working years. And so the, the number of people behind them, so to speak, are smaller because it wasn't a boom. So you get contractions in the, uh, in the wake of the baby boomers. So if immigration inflow is helping counteract this, what are some of the places in, the, in your study where you found that these inflows have been most important for their communities and economies? So that was that was one of the uh, most remarkable takeaways of the paper for me. Um, you sort of think, you know, look across the Midwest and you think of the Chicago's, the Minneapolis's, the St. Louis's as these traditional 
immigrant gateways. And certainly they continue to be. Um, but the places where immigrants um, are at least demographically having the most impact are outside of those places. Um, actually, Akron, Ohio um, was one of the places that we saw 100% of population growth due to immigration. Um, Akron isn't exactly a place you think of as being sort of a hotbed of, of immigrants, but certainly that city is growing only because the foreign-born are deciding to call it home. Um, and I think as you see immigrants uh, begin to settle outside of these gateway uh, cities, these communities that have a lot of experience in integrating them and sort of building um, the social networks that support them, um, you begin to see some of the friction and challenges that um, we've really seen come to a head, um, especially over the last few months in, in the roundup to the election. Um, places like Akron, more rural communities, smaller cities across the Midwest certainly aren't accustomed to having a foreign-born population. They aren't used to um, needing to have an ESL capacity in ESL schools. Is English is a second language. Um, bilingual education in schools, um, a, a cultural competency, for example, in, in, their, um, in their city halls, um, direct outreach to immigrant communities. You hear different languages being spoken on your streets. Um, you see women um, and men perhaps in different clothing than you're accustomed to. And there is this idea of demographic change and just change in general that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, and I think that discomfort and maybe that fear of sort of the unknown was what drove um, folks to perhaps vote the way they did, um, sort of against um, immigrant policies and open immigration in this last election. So I want to probe that just a little bit to the extent that we have, have good data on this. Um, in the commentary on the Brexit vote, when the, the uh, United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, um, a lot of that vote, the commentary said, was driven by concern about immigration. And there, uh, it was pointed out that many of the um, many of the communities where the immigration concern was largest were those communities that actually didn't have any immigration. Um, is that a pattern that holds in the United States as well? Um, you, you know, it, it is in a couple of ways. Um, for example. It, we could go to rural areas of the American Southwest, South and Southwest, and find rural areas where foreign born persons are a large uh, force because of the type of agriculture they engage in. But you can safely say that in truly rural areas of the Midwest, outside of metropolitan areas, you know, in, in actually the great um, majority of the landmass, so to speak, rural areas, there's relatively little immigration. And so it's, it's a little tough, actually, uh, to, to hang your hat on immigration as a cause of problems in rural areas of states. It's, it's definitely true. And I think that's certainly, um, I think research in this area has been a mixed bag. What, what Rob said certainly is is true, and that's been something we've seen consistently across studies. On the other hand, um, there's analysis that suggests that um, sort of a rapid rate of demographic change um, causes anxiety and so discomfort. Be a big influx of right. immigrants in a short period of time. Exactly. For example. Um, uh, as the the esteemed Audrey Singer of um, the Urban Institute says, it's the pace, not the base. Um, and, and I like that for a lot of reasons. You have some of these smaller communities like in Akron, Ohio, like a Sheboygan, Wisconsin, like a Rockford, Illinois, smaller communities who see um, an increase of 100, 150 percent, 200 percent in their um, immigrant and foreign born communities that causes um, visible change 
in communities. And that's where you start to see some of the, these challenges and, and the implications. Um, there was a, some analysis done by the Wall Street Journal right um, before the election that looked at um, the communities with the highest rates of demographic change. And the, um, the largest communities were actually clustered in the Midwest. And then you do another overlay and look at voting patterns, and those places consistently voted for Trump. Um, and this certainly isn't a partisan issue, um, but to the extent that a vote for Trump was a vote for his, um, his sort of anti-immigrant, more restrictive policies, um, we can argue that based on this data, um, a vote for Trump was certainly a vote against these places' economic and demographic interests. So one response to this inflow of immigration that we've just been talking about in this demographic change is represented by the policies that have been put forward by President Trump and others in Congress, which are really about restricting immigration in significant ways, potentially deporting uh, more people from the United States who are undocumented immigrants. Uh, based on your analysis, what would be the implication for the Midwest of pursuing those policies? Well, on, purely on the population question, as we've pointed out, uh, you've got a, a slew of Midwestern metro areas where uh, population growth is slow and um, it's, it's only kept alive by immigration. So if you, if you were to subtract immigration as a factor, you would, you, you would have a lot more economic and population contraction without a doubt. Um, and then apart from the fact that the investments immigrants make, they have higher rates of uh, business ownership and business investment, et cetera. So um, it, it's, it's hard to argue that you'd be uh, anything other than worse off if you could somehow en end immigration. Having said that, you know, there's a funny th a thing going on over the last um, 10 years or so, which is around 2007, the foreign-born population in the United States started to really slow down. And what happened is that uh, we were coming off of a few decades of really high undocumented immigration meaning, well, certainly higher than um, we had had in the, uh, many decades ago. And uh, so that uh, here we are talking about the growth of immigration and its meaning for the uh, metro areas of the Midwest, which is all very true. But uh, ironically, given the tenor of the campaign uh, for, the, for the presidency last fall, uh, we're actually seeing immigration uh, slow down quite a bit. Uh, the number of undocumented immigrants is a is a net zero, and what what net zero means is that we used to, as a nation, we we were getting about half a million undocumented immigrants a year, uh, net growth, uh, overall growth every year for a few decades there, and we're at zero now because just as many people are leaving as are coming. So um, it's a little bit of a sidebar. I mean, immigration is important, uh, but uh, ironically, um, immigration has been declining in importance somewhat, uh, and. Uh, I think uh, many people on the street don't know that. What other types of policy responses do you think should be considered uh, in response to the situation that we have now in terms of immigration, and particularly this context in the Midwest when there is uh, a falling uh, Native population? So even before the election, um, we started to see some of these demographic trends um, coming into effect. I mean, Rob's previous report beautifully demonstrated this back in 2014. We've known that the Midwest is losing native-born population. We know that immigrants are coming in and increasingly offsetting that, um, that loss, and especially in those working-age cohorts. And local governments have known this, and um, local governments have really stepped in to fill the gaps left behind by this, this completely stalled 
um, lack of federal action on this issue, stalled federal immigration reform. Um, here in Chicago, we've seen a mayor who has um, very vocally said he wants to make Chicago the most immigrant-friendly city in the world. And certainly part of that motivation is based on the fact that Chicago sees about half of its growth um, from immigration um, in this study over the past 15 years. Um, we have a, a city hall that works to support immigrant entrepreneurs, um, that works to provide civic resources, connect people to opportunities to become citizenship uh, citizens of the United States, um, provide ESL classes and other supports for, for immigrants across the city. Um, more and more, we're seeing those same sorts of programs pop up in other communities across the Midwest. Detroit, um, that's experienced dramatic population decline, has stepped up and very actively tried to um, uh, attract and integrate not only immigrants, but also refugees, um, recognizing that shrinking cities aren't vibrant cities. Um, newcomers are, are certainly a, a lifeline there. St. Louis, um, giving Chicago a run for its money, also trying to be the most immigrant-friendly city, I believe, in the Midwest. So some friendly competition going on um, on, on both sides of the Mississippi. Um, so you see, again, um, just local government, community organizations, um, the, these very local city-based and place-based programs really working to pick up where the federal government has, has left behind. And as we close, I want to ask each of you, what do you think would be the most effective policy adjustment to U.S. immigration policy that would have the biggest positive impact on the Midwest? Yeah, you know, a lot of times what we talk about is immigration in terms of um, uh, the differences between how to best use uh, so-called high-skilled immigration or high-skilled immigrants and, and so-called low-skill immigrants. And here's what we could do. Uh, we could help uh, higher-skilled immigrants who come and get PhDs in our universities, in the, in the great land-grant universities in the Midwest. We could help them stay here instead of going back to their home country forcibly where they compete against us uh, having gotten a PhD in engineering or something like that. So there are ways to, um, at the federal level, create more visas for high-skilled immigrants. But also locally, in fact, there's an effort here in Chicago of a group of universities are banding together to try to make sure that they are doing everything they can to help um, high-skilled graduates of their universities get uh, certain visas that are available to stay here. Uh, these are people who end up making a, a good um, income and paying a lot of taxes, et cetera. Now, at the lower uh, skill side of things, uh, you know, there's this idea that we have a long history of getting undocumented immigration in the United States. We're an open country. We have a, 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 an economy that um, expands and contracts and can rapidly encourage a lot of un, un, undocumented immigration. And there's this idea that uh, if you're going to get undocumented immigrants, you should just get legal immigrants. In other words, you need to create visas for low-skilled immigrants, uh, of which there really are very few. The only way you can come to the United States as an immigrant from Mexico, pretty much, uh, is that you have a, a citizen relative here or a, um, a spouse who's a legal immigrant, and then there's a 20-year waiting period. There's, there's almost no visa available for someone who comes to work in a factory or something like that. So there are ways that we could adjust the visa process uh, to use them as tools to, to get illegally the kind of workers and contributors that, uh, that we need. And I'd, um, I'd just build on, on Rob's um, thoughts there. The, our current immigration system, for all intents and purposes, was um, built in 1965. That was 50 years ago um, in response to what then was a very different economy. 
Um, we didn't have a tech industry, for example. There was no internet. There was no Facebook. Those those high tech college grads that um, that Rob just mentioned um, weren't necessarily coming to the United States. So we're, we're certainly working in different industries. Um, our agriculture sector also looked very different. We had smaller family owned farms, whereas now, 50 years later, those are consolidated and um, and more corporate um, and, and mechanized. So I would would argue that the best thing we could do is take take a look at the system and recalibrate it to our current economic realities. And we're going to see that we do need to create um, or expand visa channels at that high end um, side of the spectrum and also the lower skilled uh, side of the spectrum. Um, we're also going to need uh, supports and foreign-born workers to come in and support with these middle-skilled jobs. Um, we, we've got a need for, for global talent um, throughout our, our workforce and in many different sectors. And right now where we see um, backlogs and unauthorized workers and sort of these, these breakdowns of our system is where the visa channel doesn't match the economic need. Very good. Uh, Rob and Sarah, thanks very much, both of you, for being here. Thanks Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. And uh, for those listening who would like to take a look at the report, it's called Immigration, a Demographic Lifeline in Midwestern Metros, and it's available on the Council on Global Affairs website, uh, thechicagocouncil.org. And also, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment and give us a review. You can help promote broader understanding of critical global issues and help others find the show. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and on the council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of deep dish.